This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, Diplomates fans. Welcome to the last episode of 2022. It's been a long year. Lots to talk about. So I've brought back Hagar Shamali for our chinwag episodes. We're going to cover off so many different topics, but where to begin? FIFA World Cup, everything that's happened there with Qatar, China's COVID-0 trap that Xi Jinping has set for itself, covering off on Ukraine, but particularly the prisoner swaps between the United States and Russia, Iran and what's the latest there with the protest movement, Elon Musk and Twitter, and then also a quick summation of where Donald Trump is at as we head into 2023 in a big political year in the United States. Now, thank you to everyone who's been following the show. Thank you to everyone who's been supporting um, my efforts and promoting issues relating to the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Now, just to quickly plug some of my work, I've now commenced a regular fortnightly column with the Australian Financial Review that comes out on Fridays. It'll be out this Friday. Uh, If you missed last week's, uh, it was about how we'd reach peak autocrat in 2022. So without any further gibbering from me, if you are new to the show, please rate, review and subscribe. Otherwise, enjoy the episode. Hagar Shamali, welcome back to Diplomates. So good to see you, mate. How are you? I'm good, Misha. It's so great to see you. Thanks for having me. Now, as ever, we're coming to the end of the year, so there's a lot to cover off generally, but man, it just the year does not slow down, right? So just as we are recording this, I thought a good place to start would be the World Cup, which has just been uh, resolved. Argentina has won. Now, we talked about this last episode, I think, when we were chatting together, and I've been talking with others about it, but this sort of issue of sports washing... Has it been a success? Has it been a failure? Where do you think that this has landed um, for the Qatari regime? I'm just sort of thinking even now at the end, there's been this big brouhaha about Lionel Messi wearing this black uh, 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 robe. And so now that's the photo that's going to be the iconic photo of Messi, perhaps the best footballer of all time, wearing this robe and Qatari thing. So what's your assessment of the entire tournament, the human rights component to it all and whether or not Qatar got what they wanted out of it, given how controversial it has been. Yeah, it's a lot, right? Well, first of all, can I just say how happy I am it's over? (laughs) Because (laughs) it has been on in my house nonstop. I have major fans here in this house and um and there were a lot of sicknesses going on so a lot of kids were home and it was on the tv nonstop. so i'm happy it's over <laughs> but um it's yeah it's time which it's, it was a long month but it, so to sum it up on one hand it would be naive of me to say that qatar didn't win in some fashion this was the most watched world cup yet uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. You have all over the world, newer teams rising up, more and more people interested in the World Cup. You had a lot of con- the controversy leading into the World Cup and the controversies you had playing out there also encouraged people to watch and see what was happening, see all the protests. Um, and uh, and also even the politically charged games, right? Like Iran versus the United States, things like right. that. So. Cutter of you know Cutter did win in uh, in some shape or or, or or another. However, 
That being said, they certainly drew a lot of unwanted attention to their own internal policies, right? Related to migrants, related to LGBTQ plus rights, uh, and all how they, how they've, how they and FIFA together cracked down on protests that were taking place during the games. But what I think is, if I were to walk away with a takeaway and, and as someone, as I know you know, who, who believes very, very strongly that that human rights has a place in every foreign policy, in sports, in in everything. Uh, I believe that FIFA cannot conduct itself in the future the way it did in the run up to these games and during the games. And what I mean by that is that they're they're not uh, their their board cannot be bribed as they were to have the World Cup in Qatar and in Russia. By the way, right? Yeah. Uh, that's going to be difficult. They're not going to be. They're going to have to hold a higher standard. Uh, when choosing future places to host the World Cup, they're going to have to factor in uh, that uh, that infrastructure and stadiums and so on are built ethically, for example, um, things of that of that nature. And I think, and this is where I think FIFA really still doesn't get it. To this, I mean, right until the very end, they are they believe that politics has no place in sports. And a lot of people can have that opinion, but the fact is that it does. And it just, it just is what it is. Always. And, and that's not, I know I say that from an American point of view, but that is really not an, an American thing. And even to the very end, they prevented, for example, president Zelensky from, from sharing his video of a message of peace about how the world cup brings everybody together and how he hopes that that could be the case. And they didn't allow that to air. So to the very end, they were saying, you know, no politics at the world cup. And I think they've really missed the mark on that one. They're going to, I really think that that's, we're going to have, we're going to see them change because the consumers and the fans and viewers want them to change in that regard. Well, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because this message of no politics is really politics itself. It's just like one form of politics. Uh, so, you know, looking the other way and saying we're not going to have any political discussion in its own way is um, ironically quite authoritarian. So that's the, the regimes that they're protecting. So, look, I, it's a peculiar one though because, you know, people say, oh, there's all these issues and yet no one, everyone still watches. So it's a really hard one to, to solve. I mean, I think the, the bigger thing is, yeah, parking whether or not – clearly Russia and Qatar should never have been awarded these – back-to-back uh, tournaments. But also, I think, um, you know, going forward, the case for reforming a FIFA, because people think of FIFA like it's the UN, but it's not. It's actually a private interest, supranational body that's completely corrupt, you know, money f- flowing through, you know, no visibility of it. And there's been these corruption scandals, but you can only imagine, given that there are no effective jurisdictions keeping close eyes on them, what goes on, right? And I think overall... The case for reforming these that institution is is overwhelming, and it comes down to the big leagues. You know, the the the, the football association, the British one, UEFA, the Europeans are basically saying we're not going to continue on with this, and that's they're the ones that have the leverage here. I think the companies to an extent have it, but you know they're going to go where the eyeballs are, right? So it comes down to the organisations that affiliate to FIFA to to reform them, but. You know, something's got to happen because this is a disgrace, frankly. Um, you know, when you, 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 Qatar's record speaks for itself. And four years ago, you know, you, you, you had a World Cup in a country that just annexed and a big part of another, its neighbor, and uh, in Russia, and then, you know, started a, a war in the eastern part. And now it's completely invaded it. So 
The record for FIFA is not good. Now, switching to human rights discussion a little further, China, COVID zero. Now, this has been a big one. I've been watching this very closely. We obviously had the protests. uh, Now, I don't think anyone had any great hope that uh, those protests would lead to the uh, replacement of Xi Jinping or the Chinese Communist Party atop uh, of the People's Republic of China. But they were the biggest protests held since 1989 and the Tiananmen Square uh, massacre. And so how significant do you think this reversal is? And and really, what does this say about China under Xi? Because I, I wrote a piece, not to promote my own work, but it is my podcast, I wrote a piece saying that um, you know, things like COVID zero are ultimately the inevitable intellectual cul-de-sacs of authoritarian rule, i.e. she says, this is a really good idea, we're going to stick with it, and I've made a virtue of having lower deaths than the rest of the world, and therefore we're going to continue on, and you almost can't get yourself out of it because he says at the same time, we won't use Western vaccine, mRNA technology, we don't have that, but we don't need it because our technology is the best. And also our death rate is lower than the world, artificially low because they use such brutal lockdowns. And so the world's sort of stuck in 2020. Well, sorry, China's stuck in 2020 while the rest of the world has moved on. So how do you see these protests and what's happened since and, and whether or not it will have long-term impacts on the Xi Jinping and the CCP? So, you know, you hit a few really important points here. First, these are not – protests is not something you see often in China. Certainly not national uh, this ones. Is, no, right. And 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 on top of it, these were protests that spanned different cities, different uh different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. They were sparked. What's interesting is that they were sparked by a fire that took place in Xinjiang, in western Xinjiang region of China, which is where the Uyghurs live. Right. It was a fire that took place in an apartment building and videos showed that fire trucks were unable to help the victims because of COVID barriers, right? The lockdown barriers and 10 individuals died. And these were Uyghurs, right? And so you've got that this on on top of it, a layer of, it's not just that this was against the lockdown. It was, it spanned everybody in China. Everybody felt strongly about this. It just sparked this fury that was, that was felt among everyone. But, um, I'm and unlike you, I agree that this is not this is not the beginning of the end of the Chinese Communist Party in any way, shape, or form. Everything the Chinese Communist Party does is related to its survival and longevity. And and their reaction, however, I believe they took steps. So for for about a week into those protests, the Chinese regime came out with responses to ease lockdown measures, things like not requiring tests to take public transportation or in public facilities. And that if you have COVID, but it's not very severe, you're not going to be dragged away to some awful quarantine government facility. So, you know, and, and, and other measures. And the thing is, uh, true to form, the Chinese Communist Party couched this not as a response to the demands of the protesters, but as a review of COVID altogether that, you know, based on the economy and based on how the virus had mutated and and things of that kind, that the, the Chinese regime was updating its policy toward lockdown. Because, and, and on top of it, they were saying that all of that was due to the success of the zero COVID policy, that due to the zero COVID policy, that again, the, uh, the, the virus was not as fierce as it had been when it started and so on and so forth. And 
what I found fascinating in all of this is that as a rule, both the, I mean, the Chinese regime and other dictatorships, they don't respond to protesters usually to their demands and certainly not quickly because they view that as a sign of weakness and they fear that if you give an inch that they'll take a mile but the fact that they responded like that a week in even if they even if the context was complete propaganda even if they couched it as though as though this wasn't because of the protests um the fact is that my, uh, my analysis to that is that they're seeing what's happening around the world. They've seen how protests are playing out in dictatorships, for example, like Iran, which I know we'll talk about later. And they don't want that. They don't want mass protests. They don't want people across their country connecting and riling each other up. And they don't want protests going from anti-lockdown to anti-regime. And some of them, as we know, a few of them had started chanting against the president and against the Communist Party. And so that's the thing I found that was most, that was remarkable, was that it's, they had seen that responding to protesters with something quick and something measurable and tangible that that would be felt among protesters could not only quell them, but again, was a, a measure for their survival, a step for their survival. Whereas usually they just do the opposite, which is crack down. And they did crack down, but, but crack down with nothing else. Right. No, I also think that because they'd gotten themselves into a, a corner on the economy. So the thing about the COVID zero approach, I think had it been something else, that didn't have economic consequences, perhaps it would have just stayed as usual, which is no quarter given to any protesters. But the truth of the matter is COVID zero is also bad economics. Um, And so the trade-off for the Chinese people certainly has been for the last 30 or 40 years is economic growth in exchange for personal liberties, right? And so uh, if you've got no personal liberties, no economic growth, and it's going on and on and on, you start to ask, well, what is the point of any of this? And so you're seeing that the headline numbers uh, out of the Chinese economy are very poor. And uh, you can only imagine the number, you know, you think about what happened to Western economies uh, uh, during um, uh, during COVID. And this has gone on and on and on. And so the frustrations are boiling over, to your point. Um, the economic frustrations can easily morph into something else, political frustrations. So I think that is probably what moved them in the end. But it'd be interesting to see what, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wonder whether or not now, in a lowly vaccinated population, yes, now Omicron or whichever variant we're up to now, I've lost count, but is obviously weaker. But that's moving through populations where you've got combination immunity of either you know, people that have got natural immunity to having con- contracted COVID or they're vaccinated with superior vaccines. They've got a low vaccinated with low quality vaccines and particularly their elderly population is very lowly uh, vaccinated. So you wonder whether, and uh, across a population of like 1.3 billion people, right? So what does that look like numerically? And does that mean, you know, multiple millions of people uh, losing their lives as a result of contracting COVID? So you wonder what the political dimension of that would be for Xi, but we we'll wait and see on that, I suppose. But uh, it's one thing that I'll be watching closely. Yeah, I agree. First of all, it absolutely bears, it's worth noting that a lot of experts say that these decisions to ease lockdown measures were likely in preparation. They, they were already preparing something like that for economic reasons, right. but the protests expedited 
that that those decisions. Uh, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. And their vaccination rate for the elderly, I believe I saw was around 60 or 61%. Um, not for the population broad, more broadly, but for the elderly specifically. And so they're pursuing this campaign to, to vaccinate them. And, you know, I don't want to be accused of vaccine misinformation of any kind. So I will only say that the mRNA technology vaccine based vaccines that, that you highlighted have proven to be the most effective. Let's right. just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> and, and the president has, president Xi has refused those vaccines. So, um, uh, and, that and right, so yeah. that's my way of saying that, uh, that, one wonders the type of spike that they're going to face inevitably, right? And we're all facing it. We're in my town here in in Connecticut, just outside New York City. We've had a huge spike in in COVID. I myself am, am coming out of it just right now. And um, although I will say it was the mildest cold I had all year, but that's a separate story. And um, and so that I think that they're going to have to ex- expect that. But th- to be honest with you, I I believe that whatever comes out of of this, of these new steps and decisions. And however the Chinese regime reacts to it, it's only an opportunity for them to react, to control more. And that's what they want in the, in the grand scheme of things. It's, it's an, it's this opportunity to say, okay, well, so we made this decision. This is what happens. We're going to have to lock down again, or we're going to have to take XYZ measures. You know, again, it's, it's their, their entire, goal is to control and to maintain control and um and whichever way this goes i i I don't see why they wouldn't find a way to maintain that position no it's going to be fascinating i think they're in i think they're in a tough spot but you know as you said we're not um predicting the the fall of xi jinping or the ccp but they're certainly in the toughest spot they have been for some time now switching to dictators in tough spots vladimir putin Ukraine, big news coming out uh, of the United States today, uh, the release of uh, Brittany. Uh, what's what to make of that um, in terms of the significance of this prisoner swap uh, and um, you know, how's that been received in the US? Okay, so let's first let's walk it back a bit. So she was swapped for Victor Boot for an infamous arms trafficker. And uh, Victor Boot was, he is the worst of the worst and had been hunted down for years. He was an arms dealer who was behind so many conflicts. And by the way, not just, often not just one side of conflicts, but two sides of conflicts, meaning he fueled war and violence all over the world, in particular in countries like in Africa, for example. He was sending arms to Liberia, to uh, Sierra Leone, to Rwanda, to Sudan, to Angola. Um, He was sending arms to Afghanistan. He was sending arms, by the way, to Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And this is a guy, this is why he was given this name or, or gained the name the Merchant of Death. So bad guy, right? Pretty bad guy. He was, uh, through a, a sting operation, was arrested in 2008 and sent to the United States and had served about half his prison term. Now, experts, and, and by the way, I've read a number of articles by, authored by individuals who were part of the sting operation, who helped trap him and bring him to the United States. And some of them argue, they, they, they argue amongst themselves, which is fascinating. So I would say in the United States, it's a pretty split view on, on 
the threats that he continues to pose and on the swap itself. And so the issues that people talk about here, I would say first on regardless of, of in anybody's view on, on swapping Brittany Griner for Victor Boot, everybody's happy to have Brittany Griner home. Right. Period. Um, everybody was worried about her. This was a black gay woman in a country that is homophobic. Um, and, uh, and she was sent to a penal colony. Everybody was concerned for her safety and for, and for how long she would languish in one of these places. And she was arrested so, for having, uh, was it uh, marijuana oil mm-hmm. at the airport? She, yes, cannabis yeah. oil that was medically prescribed. Right. And, um, and she had proof that, w- that it was medically prescribed. Nonetheless, I don't, I don't think, uh, listen, I would not advise that to anybody traveling. I would not advise traveling to Russia right now at the moment in general, well, indeed, but I would certainly I not travel. I'm on the with- sanctions list, but uh, I wouldn't be going even <laughs> if I could. Um, yes, yeah. I, and, but uh, as a rule, I would tell everybody listening out there, um, don't travel with medically prescribed cannabis oil or otherwise period that's it's, official not, it's advice certainly not di- that's a diplomat's uh, <laughs> public safety health warning um and i i, I please I, big stamp on that one anyway continue on yes so she was she was uh, a week before the invasion of ukraine she was detained upon arriving to moscow with a small amount of medically prescribed cannabis oil and uh and we didn't actually hear of it until later which in the united states took on its own um its own public discourse was this fact of first of all why didn't we hear of it right away this is an incredibly successful WNBA all-star player and had it been LeBron James we would have heard of it right away so why didn't we hear of it right away number one um number two was this um well like I said this layer of uh so this is a gay black woman is that why we're not hearing about it um and uh and how much of a bargaining chip is she going to be in this in this situation we know that it's not just Russia that does this many countries that will um that detain uh, citizens from all over the world as for future bargaining chips for political negotiations, and um, and that's and that's certainly how it played out in the, in the end. And so she was um, she was there for so about nine months or so, and uh, they wanted Victor Boot in as a as a trade. The Russians wanted Victor Boot as the trade, and um, and so the negotiations went on because at the and they dragged on because the United States wanted not just Brittany Griner in exchange for Victor Victor Boot, but another American who is also wrongfully detained named Paul Whelan. And Paul Whelan is a former Marine. He was in Russia for a um for a wedding and was detained uh on as on alleged uh, espionage uh, charges. I even hesitate to share those alleged charges because uh it's it's they're likely completely fabricated as the US government has said. Russia did not, Russia treated Paul Whelan as a separate case. And so this is a big problem now that you're faced, that we have here in the United States among the public discourse. So everybody's happy to have Brittany Griner home. The, as, the, the aspects that you're seeing individuals argue over is first, uh, what message does this send to dictators and thugs around the world? Does it send this message that you can detain or kidnap an American and you're going to get something huge out of it? Right. They extracted uh, like, a very high price out of uh, this exchange, yes. haven't they? I mean, that's the thing 100%. that is most, you know, gripping about it. You know, you certainly can only imagine um, uh, 
Brittany Griner's family, etc. And, and 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 frankly, I can't hold public opinion, uh, you know, at fault for wanting her to be released in the circumstances. But it is a tricky public policy question. Um, oh, hundred percent. And autocrats <laughs> learn very carefully what behaviours are going to be. Uh, rewarded good or bad behaviors um so it does pose yep. the question if you can manage to for lack of a better term capture a highly profile um foreigner and then hold that person literally to ransom um you can extract quite a bit i mean the canadians had a similar issue with the ccp and the two michaels uh, being withheld uh broadly in response to the huawei ban but you know oh no no it was for the um the arrest of the uh, huawei executive on an interpol warrant wasn't it? That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and she was. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard to remember all the uh, all the people that are being detained for these reasons. But anyway, so continue on. But I I, I do think it is a tricky one. Um, oh, it's listen. It's super tricky. I wanna I wanna add some color that that isn't often shared on this. So I worked in counterterrorism for a long time in the U.S. government, and um, including had a lot of insight into to kidnapping for ransom, and uh, by terrorist organizations. And as a rule, the United States prohibits terrorist financing of all kind, including whether, including if it's for ransom. And so as, because of that, we had intelligence that we declassified uh, highlighting that we knew that terrorists would deliberately not, not kidnap Americans and British citizens, both because they knew they wouldn't get any money for them. Mm. And so they would often skip them and and target in particular the French, the German, and the Italians. Because they would always um, and pay. Possibly, or- yeah, because they would always pay. Yes, and 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 for some, yeah, for example, when we used to go to Germany and and when we went on, our, I was on one of these trips that was try, trying to coordinate our policies because our our view was that if we could coordinate our policies, we could undermine kidnapping for ransom as a policy on the on part of, on the part of the terrorists. So we would try to do this. And the Germans, for example, would explain to us, you know, listen, it's part of our constitution that we do everything for the safety of our citizens. And we believe that that extends to this, to, for example, paying ransom to release our citizens. And so there was no, they were not, they would not budge on that policy. I don't believe the Italians were very willing to budge on it either. But as a result, it fueled this this activity on the part of the terrorists. And we knew that Americans and and, and Brits abroad had this somewhat layer of protection because terrorists would say, "Oh, forget, I'm not going to get any. I'm not going to get anything for that person." And so, forget it. Just skip them and get, go to the European. So why and now? So, so why now? And why this exchange in such a high-profile case? Well, things have. The Obama administration was criticized heavily. Uh, for not doing enough to release Americans detained abroad, whether they be kidnapped by terrorists or detained by authoritarian regimes. And the two are very different, by the way. Um, but they do have this one point of similarity, which is that if you get something major for one of them, then you're, it's going to encourage the, the behavior. Right. So um, so that's so the Obama administration was criticized for that. The Trump administration uh, bo- uh, did a very good job at releasing Americans detained abroad. And the Biden administration is continuing that. And I, and my own analysis, to be honest with you, is that it's a little bit of a shift in what Americans are willing to tolerate, the role of the media in this and how much they know and how, how, and, and also social media, right? It, people are not, they don't go 
forgotten and languish in prisons anymore. Thankfully, by the way, mm. they people talk about them. They they create hashtags. They create campaigns. They they speak loudly, and it 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 plays on the heartstrings of the press, of the governments, and so on. And so, yes. It undermines national security. Every one of these single deals will undermine national security in some way, shape, or form. You're probably giving up a spy or you're doing some kind of prisoner swap or or some kind of deal, whatever it might be. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's Americans, at least, I find, are not – they are more aware and they're not tolerant of mm. Americans detained abroad. And so – there's a pressure on the U.S. government to act on it. Now, I will also say one point that I want to add to that is that um, it's not well known across the United States that you have to be careful traveling to authoritarian countries. Brittany Griner was there because she plays in Russia in the off-season. Why? Because she doesn't get paid as much as her male counterparts here in the United States. So that has also launched that conversation here. And that's a good debate to have here. Um, but... That's why she was there. Now, others, the hikers we had in Iran, Otto Warmbier in North Korea, you have a lot of stories of young Americans traveling to these countries thinking that they want to learn, that they want to see for themselves, that maybe they can meet the people. And and um, and it's naive. And President Biden came out and said, you know, please, please don't travel to Russia and also don't travel anywhere without checking the State Department website, which is very nerdy and very weedy. But it's important um, to to heed those cautions, no, those I warnings. Th I think that's a point well made. But it, it is interesting. I was just thinking as you were talking there, it, you know, Hollywood writers are going to have to rewrite a lot of the scripts where, you know, president in the situation room says we don't negotiate with terrorists uh, or uh, authoritarian states. I think seemingly it's interesting that that has shifted um, from what was understood to be quite a flat policy of just a, 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 an unshiftable policy. So... Shifting to places that I wouldn't recommend traveling, Iran, rounding out our dictators club today. Um, how are the protests there? I mean, I, I've been following it along, but uh, the bravery of the protesters there is extraordinary when you look at the number of arrests, but quite horrifyingly, the number of deaths that have occurred uh, as a result um, of these protests. So... Where do you see that as we head into Christmas and into the end of the year? Where do you see that protest uh, movement? Um, is it gaining momentum? Is it losing momentum? Because when I looked around at the, you know, when we we're comparing it to China, um, it felt to me or it feels to me that it maybe has more momentum and is more of a threat to the regime than what we saw uh, in China for different reasons. So what do you think? The short answer is yes, 100%. I think that this is a much, much more significant threat to the regime. And we see signs that the regime is fraying at the edges a little bit. Um, I'm not saying that they're going to fall tomorrow, but but there is really no turning back for the Iranian people. These protests have been sustained now for over three months, uh, continuous. They are taking place in dozens of cities across the country on any given day. They span different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds backgrounds and so on and um and remarkably are led by women and and the youth which they're like you said their sheer bravery is astounding because they are they are hitting the pavement knowing that the likely outcome is detention torture death rape right. and and still doing it because they do not want to see this regime at all and the thing that's so fascinating so the regime is 
now pursuing executions. They have sentenced to death a number of, of protesters and in sham trials, by the way, of course, and have uh, pursued now two executions, I believe. Um, the first, it was privately done in the prison and the second was publicly done in the, in a public square. And, um, both were 23-year-old men, one of whom was hanged by a construction crane. It was a just awful, awful image. And the regime is doing this. Why? Because they, they are pursuing this to, to, to instill fear among the people and to quash these protests once and for all. And it's done the complete opposite. It has caused widespread, widespread fury, just complete and utter shock and anger, and has further encouraged protesters. Uh, just now you had one of the most famous Iranian actresses. Um, her name is Tarane uh, uh, Ali Dusti. She was in an Oscar winning film called The Salesman and she was just arrested today. She was just arrested for criticizing the executions, for example. And they're, and and by the way, she's not the only celebrity who's detained. One of their soccer players has been just sentenced to death as well. And uh, and so they're trying to make examples out of these individuals. On, uh, these individuals, who, by the way, who represent Iran, the country. It's not. It's like they're shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, anyway, I'm digressing. But the point is, there is no turning back for the Iranian people, and that's been made very clear. The Iranian regime has tried to come out with with statements saying that they're reviewing certain things. For example, they said that they were reviewing the mandatory hijab. Yeah, the, mora and the so dress morality code. police had been allegedly pulled back, but uh, there's very minimal evidence of any of this, right? Yeah, and that was anyway, that seemed to be a bit lost in translation a little bit. Um, yeah. And uh, and but, but, the, but the bottom line is, first, I never believed that when I saw it because – this regime survives based on controlling its people and enforcing an extreme version of Islamic law. Right. And once so I they, never thought that they that no was going to have happen. that theocratic yeah. rationale, then where do they go? And I guess that was the point I was making earlier about these intellectual cul-de-sacs uh, for regimes. It's an anathema to ever do anything that is not repressive of women or uh, to, to fulfill this very hard line view of Islam that they have as a regime. So, uh, the very rational demands um, of the population, particularly women, young women saying, hey, we want to have a future that's not under the, your thumb or with jackboot. Um, they can't. They can't move on it in the way that you would expect uh, any other country to do that. Or, and, and, and you can't remove the regime in any other way than taking to the streets. You can't do it at the ballot box. So they, again, are cornered by their own intellectual uh, paucity. Uh, so, you know, do you think... This, so you you think that this is well? We, as I said, I'm not asking you to make a prediction that the uh, the Ayatollahs are about to be turfed out, but it seems that it's very difficult for them to course correct or find a way out of this to settle it down. Because as you say, when you got half the population so revved up, and then so many uh, people with soft cultural power globally supporting Iranians, that is, um, uh, so it, it is hard to see how they can get this to calm down in any meaningful way. Yes. So the first part is that I don't think that they will succeed in quashing these protests. If they do, if they find a way to limit them or or calm them down a little bit, when I say that there's no turning back for the Iranian citizens, that they, they the, from what we can see, the majority want an end to this regime, it means that I just don't think their efforts to resist the government will end. Uh, they'll start working with outside government, uh, sorry, outside organizations as much as possible. They'll try organizing amongst themselves. They'll 
any steps that they can take to prepare themselves for some kind of moment where they could overthrow this regime. I just don't think that that will ever end. And um, and that's why I say this, I, I, I kind of try and caveat, like, I don't think the regime is falling tomorrow, but you have a lot of signs that this is a real serious threat to their wow. survival. And because it's not just the continued protests, you have massive strikes going on. Um, strikes that were very, very characteristic of the 1979 revolutions, uh, revolution as well. You have um, clerics have come out in the city of Qom, for example, condemning the executions. So you have, you're starting to see disagreement among the clerics. That's a really big deal. So you, things like of that nature, that's what I mean when I say there's no turning back. The regime, you have signs that's fraying at the edges. It may take a while. Now, the thing that's, I find missing in, in this, uh, in this equation, but hopefully not for long. I don't know is the international community has come out strong. And they came out strong at the beginning, but now it's, they're a little silent for my taste personally. And that plays a large role in how much, in the extent to which these protests can continue. Because protesters, if they feel that they have the backing of the international community, then it keeps them going. And the, the reason I say that is the talking point coming out of the United States right now, and as a former spokesperson, I can tell you that these talking points are very carefully calibrated. You have coming out of the State Department spokesperson and uh, Rob Malley, who's the, the envoy for Iran, uh, saying the same talking point, which is that the priority of the United States is to support the protesters right now. Uh, sorry, is to support the protesters, uh, not the nuclear negotiations right now. And that, 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 Saying that right now, adding that right now to to that sentence implies that it could be one day in the future that one day maybe they could they could deal with this regime and and do a nu- nuclear deal and I find that preposterous because it's first of all the nuclear deal was we were never close to it anyway, so I'm not sure what they're holding out for. Number two, I just don't think this is a regime that that we the United States or anybody that's part of that deal should give any kind of legitimacy to. I don't know what that says about us, but but the part that I find hard to really wrap my mind around is that this is a unique situation where you have a convergence of American values and national security interests, and we don't seem to be taking that opportunity. So you have values based on democracy and human rights, but you the Iranian regime is at the root of all of our problems in the Middle East right now almost all of them at least. They are financing Hezbollah, Hamas, the Houthis in Yemen, the militants in Iraq. They, they are supporting terrorism and destabilizing the entire region, including the Gulf, by the way, including the Persian Gulf. And so why wouldn't we take an opportunity to further support these protesters? So what, would you, saying, what does that look like? What does that look by like? coming out, by coming out and saying that this is not a regime we will ever deal with again. Right. You that think that would actually be this, helpful materially? I think it would further galvanize the protests. Mm. And I think that Europe, because you've seen some statements of that kind from some countries in Europe questioning whether they should make a statement like that. And in my experience handling the Syria protests, they wait for the United States to come out with a statement like that because if they do, then the, uh, the other cards will fall and they'll all come out and say, yeah, you know what? We're not going to deal with this regime ever again either, whether or not they're giving us a good nuclear deal, which they're not going to, by the way. Right. But, and, and to the protesters, 
that's the only thing they have left is, is, and, and, and I know I don't, I don't want to drag on too long about this, but I'm a nerd about, about history and about lessons that we should learn in this regard. When you had the 2009 protests in Iran against the regime, the green movement, that President Obama has to this day publicly lamented that it was one of his biggest regrets was not supporting those protesters more, more loudly. Um, during those protests, Ayatollah, the Ayatollah came out waving a letter in front of everybody. And it was a letter from President Obama that Obama had written him months earlier, by the way, had nothing to do with the protests. It was about pursuing diplomatic negotiations. But he came out during those protests and said, look at the president of the United States wrote this letter to me, say, and it was beautiful words, saying that he wants to solve our problems diplomatically. And so trust me, I'm going to work with him, and we're going to get sanctions relief, and so on and so on. You all don't need to protest so much. And it was, there were many reasons that led to the, to the quelling of those protests, but that was one of them. And to me, coming out and saying, oh, we're supporting the protesters, that's our priority, not the nuclear negotiations right now. To me, that's akin to that, to that, mm. to sh- waving that letter and saying, "Oh, but the Americans are waiting for this for this regime. They're waiting. They're they're waiting for a good day for when things calm down a bit." Interesting. I will definitely keep an eye on that. And uh, look, you know, obviously, our hearts and um, with the uh, Iranian protesters who are showing just extraordinary bravery. Uh, now, regimes fraying at the edges. Elon Musk, Twitter. What's the latest there? I feel like every time we speak, we're watching this guy playing out his midlife crisis at the same time as his collapse of his empire in real time. Uh, it's peculiar. There was a poll that just before we recorded this of him asking people whether he should remain as CEO of Twitter and that um, he will abide the result. I mean, what are we to make of all this? First of all, it's a real network of baddies we're talking about today. Right. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, unfortunately, <laughs> it's a nature. Of, we, we, there are good things happening in the world, but unfortunately, we tend to have to focus on the bad things on this show. But uh, yeah, it does feel like that. It's fun not to compare Elon Musk to to awful dictators, but um, it is just it is funny. So every day I wake up, I feel like I'm waking up to more crazy news coming out of the Elon Musk Twitterverse world, and you have if it's some of the key highlights of the steps he's taken that have pissed everybody off include his now he's they're shutting down accounts of of uh, journalists who have criticized Elon Musk. Right, investigative journalists that have been reporting on Musk mm-hmm. are being kicked off the platform. Um, yes, in, in the so-called free speech uh, that uh, that Musk believes in, but that's interesting. Yep, so continue. Yep. It's right. And he ha- he claims that it's because they were, quote unquote, doxing him, that they were, you know, ex- uh, sharing information on his public uh, location at all times. And I believe there was one guy doing that with his jet, um, with his private jet. And and I don't think that that's information that's really, frankly, difficult to, to get as a former government person. I can say that a lot of that is public. But but um, but. As otherwise, these were journalists that were that are, and still, by the way, that the he's shutting down accounts on a daily basis um, of 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 anybody that is disagreeing with him, criticizing Twitter, criticizing Elon Musk. Now you have the move today was that he is shutting down accounts of other social media platforms uh, because he doesn't believe that they should have this basically free advertising on 
Twitter. So basically what I mean is like at Facebook or at Instagram, those are no longer going to exist on Twitter. But he did, by the way, he he didn't shut down at TikTok. And I, my guess there, and we could go on, that is a ta- that might be a different episode, but that I believe he has always been uh, hesitant to criticize anything that could be tied to China. Well, it's so, an interesting one, isn't it? He's more than happy to go to war with US domiciled companies, but not uh, PRC domiciled companies. So this oh, yeah. It is a fascinating – I noticed that myself and thought, mm, that's interesting. Yeah, uh, I thought that was very interesting. Um, and so this is – listen, he's burning the place down. Right. It's It's – he – and it's been like that since day day one, firing people en masse, people who whom he needs, um, some of whom he had to call back, uh, people who handle security on on Twitter, misinformation on Twitter, um, all these all these kinds of things. And and I wish I could tell you his goal. It's re- he's he really is a hard person to analyze and get in his brain as to why he's doing this. There have been, of course, a lot Dark of people who argue. Place. Dark and strange place. I wouldn't necessarily recommend getting yes. into Elon's brain, but. It's almost just like he's doing it like he, because he can. Mm. That's that's how it feels, and it feels very childish and 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 immature and um, and dangerous, by the way. But uh, but I, I don't think he's going to come out winning in in all this. Now I thought his poll that came out just now on and he he does he does operate on this vox dei vox populi. Mm. You know, way which is you know one person one vote basically that the he will do whatever the majority believes and that's so when he put out a vote on reinstating President Trump and and other accounts uh, of those who violated Twitter's policies every, the majority said to reinstate those accounts and so he did and so now he's got this poll that you just noted about whether he should remain the 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 chief twit the guy in charge of Twitter. And uh, there are still, at the time of this taping, about 10 hours to go. And at the moment, he's losing. So the majority don't want him to lead uh, Twitter. He but we'll see. That bot- he needs to get around. those bots yeah. that he's kicked off the side, allegedly, to get yep. on and vote for him. To get, dig him I out thought of about mess. that. Although maybe he's doing him a favor so he can finally leave the place. Uh, so who knows? Now, very quickly, before we get to our Dory's, speaking of... Um, uh, dishonest and unstable. Uh, Donald Trump, former president of the US, Donald Trump. Uh, we spoke about it last time. It had just been the US midterms. Conventional wisdom after that was it had been a bad midterms for Trump. He's then announced his presidency. He campaigned for president to win in, uh, to run in 2024 as a candidate for the Republican uh, nomination. Now, what we tend to see in US politics when it relates to Trump is he crosses some kind of red line or a moment happens and people say, well, this is it. This is the end of Trump. He's gone. He can't survive this. Uh, he saw it during the campaign before he won. He saw it through various states of his presidency where he was yeah, impeached twice and yet he appears to never die, at least politically. And so uh, do you think that the dust has settled on the midterms? Uh, you know, is Trump regaining his footing or is he actually starting to weaken? I, I believe he is weakening, is continuing to weaken, but I mean – Curious what your take on that is and whether or not uh, you see 2023 being a good year for him politically. I don't. I don't think 2023 will be a good year for him politically. It doesn't mean I think he'll wake up to to the fact that he's not anymore the the darling of the Republican Party. Um, There are a lot of Republicans have come out and 
Republican leaders, I mean, and distanced themselves from him have have come out and said that, you know, when he came and and he brings it on to himself. So, for example, when he he said um, a week or two ago, I believe that um, I don't, I don't want to mess up this word, but that he, the Constitution should be put on hold or, or or dismantled or whatever word he used. And 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 for a while you had some silence, of course, mm. uh, from the Republican side. But then one by one you had a you had a number of Republicans come out and say that that was even it was dangerous for him to even say that it was an absurd idea, obviously, but that it was also really uh, goes against everything that the U.S. stands for and our system and and is incredibly dangerous. And so, um, so you've got that. You have he came out with I don't know if you saw this these completely absurd NFTs portraying him in these kind of superhero like outfits and i have to be i mean <laughs> <laughs> what a view he must have of himself oh, this because some of these were him in a muscly you know six pack type of oh, outfit accurate. like superman like listen body dysmorphia can probably go both ways and maybe that's how he views himself in the mirror but but he has sold he sold these nfts for 99 dollars a piece he had something like 40 or forty-five thousand of them they sold out so i don't want to pretend like he doesn't have this base of people who really like him who believe in him he does but i just don't see it anymore as being enough to get him anywhere and even if they do like him or buy his nfts when push comes to shove at the end of the day, they're going to, his own base are going to want to win the election in favor of their party. And a lot of people have come out. Uh, it's too, too many. It's it, like I said, it's weakening too much. And he's viewed as such a joke now that a lot of what he does isn't even covered by mainstream media anymore, which is by the way, relief. And I think that that's a first sign that, you know, he's becoming a little bit fringe. Oh, I think that's uh, well put and uh, long may that continue. Now, final thought for the year. Now, we always do our John Dory, what's the story? So what have you got for us? What is your uh, John Dory this week? This is a story I really don't think anyone should miss, which was that the uh, Germany arrested 25 extremists, far-right extremists, who had been plotting to overthrow their government. And when I saw this alert on my phone, I kind of swiped it away thinking like, yeah, yeah, sure. This is everywhere in the world you have uh, individuals of this kind. And then finally, I click on the article because I kept seeing alerts pop up on this. So finally, I read the article and they had a real plan. This was a, 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 a quite a network, um, a part of a, a group of um it's a part of a far right uh, group that has been deemed a terrorist group, by the way, by the Germans, and uh, led by a uh, what what I've been seen deemed as quote a minor aristocrat, what I would call a uh, um, a prince has been. Um, so a led by this German prince, yeah, by this by this anti Semitic racist German prince has been, right. and he was leading them. And but they had a real plan. They had a plan to cut the electricity, storm their parliament building detain politicians. They had a list of politicians they were going to detain, some of whom they were going to execute and some of whom they were going to deport, including, by the way, their chancellor, Olaf Scholz. And they had, when they raided, when they did these raids, they had about 3,000 officers raiding people's homes all across Germany, by the way, but then there was one arrested in Italy and one arrested in Austria. They found 
major, major weapons and military-grade explosives. So this was not a joke. This was a planned effort. I'm not saying it would have been a successful plan. They clearly didn't have a plan for what they would do when Germany would have unleashed their military on on these people. But they had this plan, and it was based on this conspiracy theory that that the Germany that they now see, the government that is there is not legitimate. And we could go on about about their conspiracy theories. I even hesitate to repeat them because they're so absurd. But the thing that I just couldn't believe reading this was that, you know, what what is wrong with people? What what was the plan when when the Germ- when Germany would have unleashed this military on them? What was the prince said prince going to do or say? It just it's shocking and scary and sad, but also too much, you know, also a farce. Um, but anyway, news that I hope people don't miss. It's it's an interesting one. Uh, when you pointed it out to me, I missed it, uh, believe it or not. So thank you very much for bringing it to my attention. But it is extraordinary. What it, in many ways, the only missing ingredient there was a failed presidential candidate uh, leading everyone on a charge uh, at the uh, at the Capitol, the Parliament, or the, the Reichstag, because it... it it has all the same elements, right? Conspiracy theory, belief of you know, the government is you know, you know not legitimate, and, and uh, lists of you know the, the Jan Six people had lists of people that they were going to round up, etc. Uh, so troubling. Uh, no, that's a, oh, that, yeah. that is a really dark one. And uh, look, you know um, these forces are you know people talk a lot about the United States, but they are prevalent everywhere. Um, and we, oh, you know, everywhere. Yeah. And and I joke about it. Listen, I joke about it because it's so completely absurd, but it's a very real threat actually. Right. And the Germans themselves have had moved they've come out publicly for years in the run up to this saying that that they were dealing with a very se- severe and significant uh homegrown terrorist threat mm-hmm. from the far right and this is what they were talking about for example. And um and so it's that's that's a part I think that's you know, reconciling these two things, it's completely absurd. And you have these conspiracy theories that that are not just there, by the way, they were also influenced by QAnon here in the United States. So there on top of it, there are these ties. You have a lot there to unpack that is very concerning and a real threat that you have to take seriously. And that's what I mean by, I saw that alert and just waved it away. But as I kept getting more alerts on the same topic, I was like, okay, fine, I'll read this article. (laughs) You know, and as I was reading it, I was like, I cannot believe what I'm reading. I can't believe this was a real plan, that they had an actual plan to do this. And and who knows what, you know, had it gone under the radar, what would have happened? Well, this is a scary thing, right? And, uh, you know, if you go down these rabbit holes, and if you genuinely believe that your government is uh, illegitimate or that the government has been seized by for who knows what, whichever dark forces stands to reason that you should make this kind of plan, right? And so this is the scary thing about it. If people, uh, if you genuinely believe these things, then you, why wouldn't you genuinely think that you need to uh, do something, uh, you know? And, and, and so that's, that's the scariest bit. Now, in terms of uh, mine, speaking of scary things, um, and I, I say this as a citizen of the world and also as a writer, Chat GPT. I don't know if you're across this uh, this this new AI bot. Now, people might be familiar with chat programs where you you know very low quality, where you you know you're trying to argue with your telco or an airline, and it keeps telling you how have I satisfied your query, and you're like no. Um, or you've even got Siri, uh, which uh, you know constantly seems to 
reply to me when I'm not talking to Sirius. That makes me wonder about what information is being sent to Apple. But uh, no, th- this is a, a whole other deal where it is very sophisticated in its uh, in its artificial intelligence and can now basically write basic stories, respond to all kinds of uh, very uh, sophisticated responses to questions and is available publicly now for free. Uh, I I just think that, you know, my brother and I, we have this joke that we always quote Carl Pilkington, who uh, is uh, famous as quote for, he's made of Ricky Gervais, but he had a show called Idiot Abroad. And he used to have this saying, or probably still does, but I always quote it where he says, everything's been invented. We don't need all this new stuff. And I think about this chat GPT is basically, I think I saw this movie, it's called Terminator, and um, it ends quite badly for us. So, and certainly as a writer, it's going to, I think I'm kind of at smashing the looms kind of uh, moment um, uh, of the Industrial Revolution. So, one that watch, I, I really worry what we're, we're doing with some of this stuff. That's an, uh, the other one that... Uh, AI related, but deep fakes are another problem that I think we are not ready for video wise. So that's my hand wringing one for the uh, to end the year on uh, Hagar. But uh, I don't know if you've seen that, what you think of it. I did see the news about this and I was listening um, to a podcast where they used chat GPT to mimic the host of the show. So the host or the chat GPT said something in the voice of the host. And then as after that sentence or two, the host came back on live and said, that actually wasn't me. That was chat GPT. And I was completely fooled. And Bloody my, hell. I mean, you're not allowing oh my, God, my concerns. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I know, I know. And listen, I've seen a lot of these articles in tech um, in tech outlets saying everybody's getting, they're over-exaggerating, you know, chat GPT isn't perfect. Everybody can, it's wrong all the time. Yeah, it makes mistakes. It's not yeah, going to, yeah, and it's not going to write essays for college kids and so on and, and so forth. But, uh, you know, I always view things from the angle of how technology, <laughs> you know, and advancements in technology is amazing and can be, can be used for such good. But, but, it's the criminals are usually the first to jump on these things and use them for nefarious reasons. Right. And when I, when I heard that, when I myself was fooled very, very easily by this chat GPT voice over um, of, of this anchor. And I kept thinking to myself, Oh my God, like how could that be used to frame people to, right. to, you know, it, that it, it's, and that gets to your point about deep fakes. It's the same thing. And so um, yeah, these, these technologies only get more and more sophisticated and, that can be – it's impressive, but it can be very concerning as well. Well, you look at what social media has done uh, and the way that it was you know, a, a bit of a toy for everyone and suddenly uh, it was used by uh, you know, nefarious state actors to either manipulate their own um, domestic uh, you know, information ecosystems but also interfere in elections and all sorts of things. So mm-hmm. – Big concerns there. Anyway, I'm sure the nerds will sort it out, um, but uh, hopefully no one takes the time to mimic me in a podcast because that'd be a doubly big waste of everyone's time having already done it once. <laughs> anyway, so uh, look, uh, Hagar, as ever, so many things that we could talk about, but we're going to have to wrap it up where we are running out of time. So thank you for coming on as always. Stay safe, have a happy holiday, but get your plug in for your amazing show, the Oh My World Show. 
Thank you so much, Michelle. I appreciate it. Uh, my show is All My World on YouTube. It's 10 minutes once a week where I cover the top world news stories and geopolitical events in a fun and easy way and with a lot of political satire, which means that I dress up like a lot of world leaders, mostly old men, with uh, wigs and bad accents. And uh, and it's a lot of fun. I have a lot of fun doing it. And uh, you can subscribe on YouTube and find me across social media on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and so on. Yeah. Actual jokes as compared to my, my bad jokes and, uh, you know, very, uh, very sort of uh, non sequitur responses. Anyway, so look, thanks, Hagar. Have a great break and we'll see you in the new year. Sounds good. Here's to a better 2023 for geopolitical events. Well, the only way is up, mate. Fingers crossed. <laughs> see ya. G'day, Diplomates fans. Uh, look, thank you to everyone who's listened and supported the show this year. Big thanks to Hagar for coming on. You can follow her uh, on Instagram, Twitter, and wherever else uh, you like to get your social media. But obviously, YouTube is where you can get the majority of her show. Now, I've got a question. It's actually interesting. I had a few, so I'm always sorry for everyone that I can't get to your question. But Jessica has asked me, what was the best book of 2023 now? I have to say, I have not read as many books as I would have liked this year. Um, it was kind of uh, due to travel, et cetera. I, I was not able to dedicate as much time as I'd like, but I actually really liked The Chancellor, uh, which is about Angela Merkel. Now, Merkel's a, a woman and a leader that I knew a bit about, but not a lot about. And so I really uh, found it a fascinating and illuminating look into her life. Incredible story um, to come from Eastern Germany and being in the Soviet Union and to, you know, to lead a unified Germany is an extraordinary story. And um, I think um, if you haven't read it, um, get yourself a copy. I think you'll find it enjoyable. Anyway, that's it from me. We'll be back in the new year. Going to be maintaining a pattern of uh, fortnightly episodes where Hagar and I talk like we just did uh, for somewhere under an hour, ideally. And then also long form interviews. And uh, thank you to everyone who's been subscribing to the show. It's made a huge, big difference. Um, We were number seven or number six in Australia last week. So thanks again for your support. See you soon. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.